Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by ND.ca. This is the mattress company in Canada that keeps manufacturing local. They avoid duties, currency exchanges, international shipping, and that's why their mattresses cost between $675 and $950. You cannot find a mattress of this quality for a mattress of this price anywhere else, and you'll get 50 bucks off of that when you go to ND.ca and use the promo code CANADALAND. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates delicious new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everybody from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Whenever I read that in the context of food, I feel like the cooks are seasoned. I digress, and that's absurd. For 50% off of your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Emma McPhee in Fredericton, New Brunswick, student journalist, journalist, but proud student journalist, vice president of the Canadian University Press, former editor-in-chief of the Brunswickian. Welcome to Canada Land Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. Emma, today we are going to talk about the solemn obligation of our universities to fund any and every lunatic's speech. Anything less is censorship. We are going to talk about Canada Land's ongoing investigation into possible media bias on the part of the Cracker Jack news team at Ford Nation Live. And we are going to talk 
about Aaron Weir's expulsion from the NDP caucus. Is he guilty of sexual harassment or merely of being unpleasant? It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Okay, this episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Tamarack Hawken, Monica Ward, James Price, Eric McGill, Tim Penton, Aaron Valentine, Steve Rodriguez, and Michael Liu. I support Canalan because I want to be informed about Canadian issues, but I'm too lazy to read. I'm a student, I got enough readings, and I'm busy, and Canalan gives me an informative, independent, and interesting take on Canadian issues that I should care about. And there's absolutely no excuses not to support because at 10 bucks a month, it's less than one copy for me a week. I support my local media, and that's why I support Canalan. And this episode is brought to you by Andy. Are you still in school? Yes. Yeah. Are you, do you have like an apartment? Are you in residence? Like, I can't imagine that the mattress situation, I don't remember prioritizing my mattress situation when I was still in university. It's something that became more important to me through the years. I'm assuming as you get older too, you want a better mattress. (laughs) Yes. As chronic back pain sets. Yes. Let's leave that part aside for a second and talk about Andy's mission as a Canadian mattress company with comfortable mattresses for the young and the aged. Emma, this is basically your mattress in a box. They send it to you. And the whole point of the mattress in a box is it's a lot cheaper than the mattress you get at the big box store because they're not paying for a big box store. Andy does one better because like typically it's like 2000 bucks for a pretty decent mattress in one of those big dumb stores and like a thousand bucks or more for a mattress in a box. Andy is Canadian made and their materials are Canadian made and they don't have to pay any kind of... uh, currency conversions or duties at the border. So this is the only way you're going to get a top quality mattress in a box for under a thousand bucks. Even if you are getting their king size mattress, it's under a thousand bucks. And because people listen to this podcast, they can get $50 off of those already low prices when they go to nd.ca and use the promo code CanadaLand. Check it out. Doug Ford was in Kitchener today to announce that the average Ontario family will save 12% on their hydro bills thanks to the Ontario PC's honest and responsible hydro plan. Bombshell. As Doug Ford's bus continues to roll through Ontario, another Kathleen Wynne scandal is detailed in the Globe and Mail. And shocker, this one's going to hurt hardworking Ontarians the most. Today, soon-to-be Premier Doug Ford made a major investment of $1.9 billion over 10 years for mental health, addiction, and housing support. For Ford Nation Live, I'm Lindsay Vanstone. For Ford Nation Live, I'm Lindsay Vanstone. For Ford Nation Live, I'm Lindsay Vanstone. Look, Emma, I have nothing but respect for reporter Lindsay Vanstone and her news team at Ford Nation Live. They get incredible access to Doug Ford. They're often the first on the scene somehow. They are uncompromising, whether they are exposing Kathleen Wynne's fat cat buddies or doing their deep dive exclusive on Kathleen Wynne's fat cat cronies. This is hard-hitting stuff from the news team at Ford Nation Live. Respect. But look, this is my job. I'm a media critic. I can spare no one from scrutiny. Every news org, no matter their reputation, needs to be looked at. That is just my job. Okay, um, look, everyone is very, very upset and shocked that Doug Ford is making his own fake news. Do you buy that that shock? Should people really be that shocked? Are they that shocked? I really didn't think it was shocking. I was just like, oh, that seems like something Doug Ford would do. It's popular. Some of those videos have over a million views. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's campaign propaganda. He's not the first to do it. The liberals did it in a, in previous election. Now, Stephen Harper did his own kind. It didn't look quite as much of a, like, parody of a mockery of a simulation of a newscast. I feel like 
there's been a dumb conversation going on between journalists as to whether or not, does Doug Ford think that people are so dumb that they won't know that he made these videos? And, you know, Andrew Coyne is saying he absolutely thinks that people are that dumb. I kind of think that, that the people who enjoy those videos and get their information from them don't care. You know, like they're being told what they want to hear and it's not important to them. I think that they're cognizant on some level that Doug Ford made them, but they're, they've made a decision. I don't trust the mainstream media. It's uh, totally in the tank for the left and for Kathleen Wynne and Justin Trudeau. There's more truth in this. That, that's my suspicion. Maybe I'm giving people too much credit. No, I actually was thinking the same thing. Like people who are tending to only watch Ford Nation Live or even watch it more than other people, they're not going to really trust the mainstream media. So they're not really going to be getting their information elsewhere anyhow. And even if For Nation Live wasn't a thing, they would be like totally disbelieving everything else that was being said in, in the other media. We now know that uh, the conservative campaign writ large has not only paid staffers to pretend to be journalists, but they have also candidate Meredith Cartwright. Her campaign has paid for actors working at less than minimum wage, by the way, actors to pretend to be Ford supporters standing outside of the most recent and the first uh, leaders debate. So really, it's just a wonderful world of make-believe in the Doug Ford campaign. We have have people pretending to be reporters. We have people pretending to be supporters. He's paid $20 to voters before, so arguably you can make the case that those people are pretending to vote for him but actually voting for him. I think that people are not giving enough credit to the wonderful world of imagination of Doug Ford. You know, he does support the arts in his own way. Yeah, and, and the whole time He's saying it's unnecessary, too, which I think is interesting. You can't make this shit up. So Lindsay Vanstone, who presents herself as the reporter for Ford Nation Live, her LinkedIn says that she's the executive assistant to Doug Ford. A quick Googling of her reveals that in 2011, she entered a public competition to become Charlie Sheen's intern. I'm probably spunky enough to do it, she said about her desire to win this uh, this competition. Personally, I don't think he's crazy at all. So <laughs> it's probably beyond the purview of our conversation to build a psychological profile of Lindsay Vanstone and her uh, attachments to a certain kind of, of male individual. You know, that's not ours to say. <laughs> I mean, it's a heck of a democracy we have going here in Ontario, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm moving to Ontario in the fall, so I'm looking forward to uh, finding out more about it. It's just interesting that Doug Ford has said he's looking into um, university funding based on free speech. And then here he is with his own media covering him, and yet he is claiming to be all for free speech. There might be a little bit of irony there. I don't know. Yeah, I think that like writ large conservatives have found. I mean, Shears brought it up that, that yeah, this is a yeah. this is a good it's a good wedge issue. This idea, like, I mean, it's funny because so many people like suddenly care like a lot about campus free speech. Who I don't think have been near a university campus in a long time. It's just like the most low hanging fruit to find some like humanities prof radicals to try to paint that this is what universities are like now, and that there's some sort of like real persecution effort where it's impossible to be a conservative on campus or to discuss conservative ideas. However, like granular or minute that is, it sells. It seems to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's an idea that gets people's uh, their ire up. It ignores the fact that most of these conservative views were the ones that were mostly found on campus in society for so many years. And it's almost like now that the status quo is being questioned, these people feel threatened. Yeah, I think that that's true. But even so, isn't that still the status quo? Like, you know, I I remember thinking when I was in school, like, wow, this is a really like, it's a really left-leaning campus Mm -hmm. in my, not even just in my English department, but in my like cultural studies subsection of the English department, leaving aside the fact that better funded and more students and more power on campus was in the school of management or the engineering or economics. Like there were all 
these other departments that I don't think were heavily influenced by by Foucault or by Marx in any kind of meaningful way. Like the actual daily lifeblood of the campus had very little to do with progressive or radical politics. It's just sort of been magnified. Right. Yeah. I guess my 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 overall feeling about this uh, really indignant response to the Ford Nation Live thing is mostly a reflection of journalists noticing that uh, Ford ignores them, won't answer their questions, is not providing the same level of access, and then he does his own fake news station. So it's really about their own, like, hurt feelings that mm-hmm. he is, uh, and it's, you know, this is what his brother did. It's a familiar game, and, and then Trump did it, of like, the media is more useful to me as an enemy than as a conduit for my message. They're not going to do me favors anyhow, so let me make them my enemy and present this narrative that here's the real information. And... It's sad, exclamation mark at the end of my tweet, it's sad that after all these years, we don't have any better response to it than to say, like, why I never? Look what he's doing. How dare he? When it's very clear to all of us the game that he's playing and the role that he's giving mainstream press. And, you know, it, it, like, it's just an insult that, like, the sad part of it is it might be true. Not that the media is horribly biased or going to stitch him up anyway, but that he can afford to snub the media. That it, that, mm-hmm. that it actually doesn't hurt his electoral chances at all. Emma, you are getting a lot of accolades this week for fact-checking the pros and specifically for contesting an argument that was put forth in the Chronicle Herald in Halifax. Can you take me through this whole, I mean, like, I guess it's a story that's played out different versions of the same campus free speech thing in the States and here, and we have the similar rogues gallery of names involved, but maybe you can give me a summary of what happened in this particular instance. Yeah, sure. So I've been following along with the whole Lindsay Shepard and Elsoy at Laurier pretty much since it began. And so I believe it was the last week of April, Lindsay announced that her group Elsoy, uh, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, was going to host a talk called In Conversation with Faith Goldie and Ricardo Duchesne. And it was going to be on the topic of, I believe, borders and immigration. But they couldn't hold it at Laurier, which is their school, um, because it was kind of planned last minute, apparently. So they went to the University of Waterloo and were given some space. Now, with talks like this that are so charged with opinion, I mean, there's people on one side who agree with Faith Goldie, and then there's quite a few who who don't believe with her views. Um, Because there was going to be protesters there, they were originally quoted a security fee of between $1,400 and $1,600, which seemed reasonable for the group. I believe they were going to try to crowdfund on GoFundMe to um, raise those costs. But then Waterloo came back and said that the cost was going to be $28,500. And so on April 25th, uh, Lindsay Shepard announced on Twitter that she was going to cancel the talk because they were not able to raise that huge security fee. And yes, uh, that does seem like a huge security fee. And I was noticing on Twitter following the story that People were saying, oh, how is that fee real? Where did the numbers come from? But no one was actually asking Waterloo where the numbers were coming from. And seeing as Ricardo Duchesne is a prof at uh, the University of New Brunswick, the St. John campus, which is sister campus to the school I attend, and seeing as I had just finished a stint as a student journalist at UNB Fredericton's student newspaper, I thought, well, I will be the one to ask those questions. I uh, shot out an email to Waterloo comms, and really it felt like they were blowing me off because I didn't get a reply or the phone call from them until... uh, well, 5.30 my time on Friday, but that's the realities of the student press, it would seem sometimes. Um, and they told me that it was actually the police who had suggested that they raise the fee when, when they went to them to kind of consult on the security for this event that was being held on their campus. Um, so that was the last week of April that I discovered that. I'm still a student right now. I'm working on a master's thesis. I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to do that story. So I kind of 
sat on it. And then last Sunday, his opinions piece by Mark Mercer, a prof at St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia, came out. Um, he was basically asking where were the police, because if the police were the security for the event, then the taxpayers would have paid for it. And then I was like, aha, I'm the only one who knows that the police were actually <laughs> in on this. Um, so that's when, instead of writing a story on it, I decided to use my information and just kind of take down his entire editorial on Twitter and it got picked up. And I just find it so funny because I just asked a basic question and there are a lot of people saying that like I'm a great journalist and it's just like, I feel like I did the bare minimum here. <laughs> sometimes the bare minimum does a lot yeah, and sometimes seem... the bare minimum is what nobody else is doing. Yeah. I mean, okay, I, from my perspective, what you have here is like, like this is a narrative that is almost part of like a strategical roadmap. Like this American Life this week is all about this stuff, is about how right. there's like a, a big conservative uh, conference where they say, here's what you do. You try to book right wing speakers and then they'll tell you that there's a big security fee so they can't do it. And then you videotape them saying that, you know, there's this whole like playbook that this mm -hmm. seems to be out of and people can kind of play out this drama without questioning the basics here. So it, it was a beautiful thing where you've got this academic Mark Mercer who's like, I'm a civil libertarian. I don't yeah. like I don't like thugs threatening free speech. And, you know, where were the cops protecting free? If you can't have free speech in a university, then where should you? And his argument goes from being like, well, damn straight. And why? Well, of course, we should be able to talk about borders and immigration. These are these are totally legitimate issues to discuss. And whether Faith Goldie is a, just a white nationalist or, in fact, a white supremacist. Let's leave that aside. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, you know, where are the cops and all this? If, if the university is going to basically chicken out and, you know, they, they don't want to look like a censor, so they're just going to say, oh, the security is too expensive. Where are the cops in this? And you're the one to say, well, well that quote came from the cops. It was the cops who said it was $28,500. Yeah. And, you know, even the more you get into it, this whole idea, this whole conceit that the university is failing its duty, the group that is asking to stage this discussion is not a university group. So the logic, I I guess that Mercer is putting forth is that any group that wants to debate issues on university campus is owed the funding and the security from the police and the university, even if it's $28,500. And then even his own logic is so faulty because he says, like, it sickens me that, you know, these thugs, these thugs who are trying to shut down freedom of speech, these are all hypothetical thugs. Yeah. Right? Like, it's like the cops are saying that we're going to need, you know, $28,500. They're probably right that people are not going to want to have Faith Goldie with her white supremacist views on campus, but whether or not thugs would be present and, and limiting her freedom of speech and, and the cops would need to crack down on thugs. And I think you pointed out, as did others, what kind of civil libertarian is calling for $28,000 of police presence exactly, to police yeah. against protesters who are arguably exercising their freedom of speech? But it was just, you know, you just need a fact. And your fact was sort of the little thread that you could kind of unspool the whole thing from. So I think you're deserving of the, <laughs> of, of the congratulations you've been receiving this week. <laughs> It's been an interesting week for sure. But what I found especially is that here's Mark Mercer, a tenured university prof, and he doesn't really seem to know how universities work. Um, like one of his arguments was that nothing could be worse for the exchange of ideas than the need to first submit them to an authority for approval. But that's just how universities work. Like he got a job somehow because people thought his research was good and he'd be a good prof. 
He didn't just walk in there and they just gave him the job. Yeah, this idea of sort of academic neutrality or institutional neutrality, like universities decide which professors to hire, which departments to fund, which courses to offer, uh, which events to stage. Like they're constantly making those. I mean, there is, I think, a certain amount of latitude that students have to have whatever kind of conversations they want. And, you know, like that seems to be maybe like an area where we're seeing the culture wars play out. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's some legitimacy to students like trying to bring in speakers on their own dime. And then we get to this question of, look, I've always shared the discomfort with speakers being, you know, this is this is not a new thing. I mean, I remember Netanyahu uh, being blocked from speaking at Concordia. I've always been more comfortable with like, let there be shouting protest. That's absolutely part of free speech. But when you're actually physically blocking people from speaking, it did make me uncomfortable. I think I'm probably now a bit more open to the kind of no platforming argument when you're dealing with like, I don't know about Netanyahu for whatever people want to say about his policies or practices, like he's a world leader who is part of the discourse, whether you like him or not. You know, when you get to like a Faith Goldie, it's like, you're a racist, you know, and she hates that, right? She, she's always yeah. like, like, like the lying media calling me a white supremacist. I'm a white nationalist. I think that, you know, she would like to say like, hey, different people can think we can have, we should have cultures uh, for different people, countries for different people. I don't think there's any way to get to a white nation without putting white people first. So I'm pretty secure in calling her a white supremacist. And I feel pretty confident about calling her a racist. And if she has a problem with that, as she has a problem whenever people use those words to describe her, I think she should sue me. I think she should sue me. I I, I really do. I think that, uh, you know, as I understand it, there are some viable defenses against libel, one of which is truth. I, I think I would welcome the occasion to prove that she's a racist and a white supremacist. And, you know, there's another thing that you need to, to prove if you want to prove that somebody libeled you, which is that they damaged your reputation. You have to have a reputation first. And I think she'd have trouble proving that. So I'm tired of playing this game as to whether or not Faith Goldie, who uses the 14 words about securing a future for white children and who goes on Nazi podcasts and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. I'm really confident that calling her a racist, a bigot, a white supremacist, and and she can come at me. And I don't see a distinction between her white nationalism and white supremacy and straight up racism. I won't call her a Nazi, though. I think that's a slightly different thing. I'm, I'm not calling her a Nazi. No, and that tends to be a huge conversation around that. And also, like, you know, you could have a discussion about multiculturalism, borders, and identity in Canada. I'm just not sure inviting Faith Goldie and even Ricardo Duchesne in to have that discussion is really going to add to the discourse or or do anything except to inflame, which I think is what Elsoy, this group, tends to be going for. I applaud you for calling bullshit on that as well. I think that getting these reprehensible people in, but then not calling it a white nationalism rally, but instead saying a civilized discussion about borders and immigration is bullshit. And we don't have to play that game. So I think like what I really like about the kind of fact checking that you've been bringing is that it gives us something beyond just people yelling at each other. It's it's just the beauty of information, the beauty of the truth that unraveled Mercer's editorial completely. And it's not the first time that you've done this either. When John Kay was trying to, you know, mount this argument that people should stop talking about literal Nazis and real life Nazis, you had the receipts were like, dude, there are Nazis. And like, I know there shouldn't be Nazis. It's 2018, but there are self-identified, self-proclaimed Nazis who who read Mein Kampf, who see Gale, who the whole, the whole Nazi thing, it's, it's happening. It is. And I think some people don't seem to understand the difference between, you know, hiding your heads and saying, oh, there's no Nazis, oh, there's no white supremacists, or like completely shutting off 
what they have to say. Whereas there's a difference between that and then acknowledging the fact that these views are held and that these people exist without giving them legitimacy and platform. Like there's a difference between those two things. And I tend to think like, yes, we should acknowledge them, provide context and background. And if you can prove that they're reprehensible views, then certainly say so. But what people tend to be arguing that when people try to do that, they tend to say that it's like, oh, you're shutting out that point of view, but we're not. We're just bringing it into this discussion in a way that has context so that we can maybe further public discourse in a way that's much more useful than just shouting at each other. Emma, good work on Twitter. Uh, welcome to the miserable world of professional Canadian journalism. <laughs> it's, it, I'm looking forward to more. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Emma, I'm going to thank our other sponsor today, and that is the meal kit delivery service, HelloFresh. They are dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Do you cook? Yes. Have you ever used one of these things? I, I haven't, no. Well, let me tell you, it makes cooking a lot easier. It's a good way to take a lot of the planning and the shopping and the throwing out of excess ingredient out of your cooking routine. Just have a box delivered to your door where like some of that grunt work is done for you. Like if I have time, I like to dice onions and do all these things. It's therapeutic and all that. But like if I'm just trying to get food on the plate and I, I don't want to do takeout or delivery, I want to cook then you've got recipes from HelloFresh that are going to be ready in 30 minutes or less. And they're really interesting and delicious recipes. They've tested them in their test kitchen. There's no waste. 
They figured out the quantities. It's all good. I feel bad about throwing out food. I don't like wasting food. They give you a lot of food. I always seem to have leftovers when I cook with HelloFresh, and that's nice too. If all of this sounds good to listeners, if this meal kit thing that you've been hearing about here and elsewhere is something that you have thought of doing but haven't tried yet, there's really no reason not to give it a shot because you get half off your first box. 50% off a big box of delicious food when you visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Emma, you, uh, you've heard this show before. You know that we have this duly noted thing. What do you have to duly note for us? So this past Wednesday, um, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, that's Lindsay Shepard's group at Laurier, held an event, another event with a speaker that uh, is heavily criticized. Uh, security cost for that event was $5,473. They actually raised that in one day by 185 people, which shows the kind of support this group gets. They went over their goal actually on GoFundMe, um, raising 6481 but the talk is with a, was with a Francis Witterson, who was asking the question, does university indigenization threaten open inquiry? This is a prof from Mount Royal University who uh, has only co-written one book in her time as an academic that was heavily criticized, taking up old views of cultural evolution that actually calls indigenous cultures underdeveloped cultures with obsolete features. And this causes indigenous communities to be undisciplined with their work habits have tribal forms of political identification and difficulties in developing abstract reasoning. So this is the kind of speaker, it's just kind of like goes with that theme of what this Society for Open Inquiry is bringing in. And it raises the questions like, are they really for open inquiry? Because they only really tend to bring in one point of view. And it tends to be like the more anti-Indigenous, white supremacist views that they're claiming aren't popular. But if the people they're bringing in are profs or Faith Goldie, they obviously already have a platform. So how unpopular are these opinions really? Duly noted. I would like to duly note the big media news this past week, which is that La Presse, uh, the massive newspaper in Quebec, has gone non-profit. The Demare family has given up control of it. They're shifting it to a non-profit model. And I have a couple of thoughts about this. I love the idea of new models and nonprofit models for newspapers and for news organizations. I think, you know, everything from like the way that The Guardian is set up to things like ProPublica, the fact that it seems like Canada is going to loosen up the rules around allowing nonprofits to do news, that, that's all great. But the, the problem with this is they've explicitly said that part of the reason why they're going nonprofit is to better position the paper to receive government subsidies and get a government bailout, not just charitable donations uh, from people, but government money. And I think that the uh, the celebration may have been too soon, may have been premature to say, oh, we've dodged the bullet of the big news bailout. It seems like the more that we're hearing from Heritage, and it's just a question of money and time, there is a will, a political will, to bail out the news in a sustained, ongoing way. And, you know, my thoughts on that are, are well documented. I guess, like, just one thing I want to add to it is just that, like, it really redoubles our efforts here. I do think that organizations that are publicly funded need to be held to a higher level of scrutiny than private organizations. And if we're going to move to a thing where every newspaper is government funded, whether taxpayers are paying for these papers, whether they like it or not. And the kind of stuff that we document here every day, like, you know, the Toronto Sun having an editorial agenda to lobby for Doug Ford before the writ is even uh, dropped, 
or drawn up. Shout out to Steve Pakin. When you've got like explicitly biased news like that and they're getting government money, if that's the future, then the need for media criticism and media watchdog is like, we're, we're going to be working overtime and uh, all the more so because we're not going to take any of that money. Anyhow, La Presse is a huge paper. The other thing I wanted to say about this is everyone's discussing this, this La Presse move without any discussion about the fact that like it seemed like only yesterday that La Presse was supposed to be the big digital success story where they were the ones that solved digital news with their tablet app and, and they were... I actually selling i can't believe what dopes the star are that they they bought this tablet app strategy from la Presse for a fortune it's like i uh, buying like a, a life jacket from a sinking boat it's just so dumb and we were told that la Presse is making money hand over fist with this tablet app where's the discussion like were they lying uh was it briefly making money but now it's not uh it's you know it's privately held company so we don't know the financials of this but i'm, I'm really surprised that we're not getting into more fulsome conversation about whether or not they were lying and swindled torstar completely duly noted what about the three claims of sexual harassment that that I should I should repeat the inve independent investigators said were sustained by the evidence? Well, th those those are the uh, claims in question. That was the the, the question by you. I, I'm sorry. Question by you. Like they're in question by you because the the, no, no, the no, report the... concluded that, that they were sustained by the evidence. Oh, exactly. So what the investigator found uh, was that I was sometimes slow to pick up on social cues and that I sat or stood uh, too close to people and engaged them in conversation uh, more than they wished uh, to speak with me. Uh, now, that's far from what most Canadians would consider to be sexual harassment, but that was the investigator's finding. In other words, he's among the unlikeliest of MPs to be the NDP's first casualty of a harassment investigation. And we're talking about an investigation worthy of being seen as a witch hunt. Poor Aaron Weir. It appears you kind of get this idea that here's this guy who, like, maybe doesn't have the best go of it with the ladies to begin with. He's... Uh, pretty socially awkward. He's being humiliated here. All he did is, is, is just can't pick up on the signals. And here he is getting thrown out of caucus and publicly humiliated. And uh, even to the point where is he the victim of a witch hunt? My concern here is that we're just getting it from Aaron Weir, that the only thing he did wrong was stand too close to people and not pick up the cues. The independent NDP review didn't just find that he he has these uh, accusations, but that the accusations did harm. And we haven't heard what these women have to say about what harm he caused. We're just hearing it from him. What did you think of these interviews? First of all, just from what I heard, it doesn't really sound like he was guilty of anything beyond just being an awkward guy. Like, as a woman, I've certainly been in awkward situations. But we haven't really heard what harm the people who might have experienced the harassment supposedly received. But I also heard that as soon as, like, there was given a no or, like, consent was always respected. And I think that's something that's important to note. It doesn't sound like the rule of consent was ever broken in this situation. So based on what I'm hearing, it doesn't sound like it's as big of a deal as it should have been made to be. But again, we're only really hearing the one side. I guess that's it. And, I, you know, I'm going to get into something that maybe if I was smarter, I wouldn't get into. But, you know, some of the people who've rushed to his defense, he hasn't used this word, but people who've rushed to his defense have said, like, when you meet him, you kind of get the feeling like he might be on the spectrum, that this guy might be on the autism spectrum, where a common facet of that is the inability to read social cues. And I think that, like, he hasn't used that himself as a defense. So I am pretty skeptical of people kind of doubling down on his behalf and saying, leave this poor guy alone. He has some neurodiversity issues here. If he wanted to engage with that, then that would be on. I can conceive of an MP 
who comes on to women in an unwanted way, leans in too close, propositions them, doesn't pick up on social cues, and does it repeatedly until you explicitly say no. And because of the power situation there, there's a lot of disincentive to just saying like, stop doing this, I'm not interested. I can conceive of that actually being sexual harassment. Right. I'm not ruling on this. And I, I think that what we're learning as these you know cases go on and on is that for all of the kind of criticism of like, oh, this is being tried in public and the court of popular opinion is terrible, mob rule, this would be better if it were, if the facts, I don't like secrets about this. It's all happening out in the open anyhow, to some degree. Mm -hmm. The internal processes of parties where obviously Aaron Weir was was running afoul of Jagmeet Singh for other reasons. If it was somebody who was crucial to Jagmeet Singh, would he have been as quick to boot him from caucus? Obviously the politics is going to factor into that decision. Universities having closed door tribunals about this stuff where we don't have the facts. I still feel like I can't fully opine or understand the Stephen Galloway case because like I, I haven't read that full report. I'm getting everything second and third hand. With the criminal court system as shitty as it is for sexual assault and harassment cases, I still feel like the press is the best place if it's going to come out. Like, at least we can make decisions with the actual facts at hand as opposed to mystery box information. No, for sure. And like, it's almost impossible to form an opinion based on what we know about this anyhow. Yeah. And, and the plot just gets weirder and weirder. Like then Neil McDonald writes in his opinion column, like Neil McDonald is now a CBC opinion columnist. You'll <laughs> note he's not on TV anymore. In his opinion column, he breaks this news that there's this Afghanistan vet, Glenn Kirkland, who is saying, well, if Aaron Weir is going to be booted from caucus, what about Christine Moore? What about NDP MP Christine Moore? She abused her power, plied me with gin after my emotional testimony, had sex with me. I'm not saying against my will. He's very clear about that. He's not a survivor. He called himself a thriver. But there was a power imbalance that he feels was improper. And then she, he's not saying harassing, but she was a bit of a, of a pest afterwards. And this all comes out in a Neil McDonald column. Wow, what do we do with this? I, I think the first thing we're learning here is that between Christine Moore and Aaron Weir's uh, romantic habits, politicians are just totally unfuckable, undateable people. These are like, these are odd people. Um, if, we're, if we get nothing else from this. I don't feel like we should know about either. I don't know. I don't know the I don't know all the facts. Your thoughts on the Christine Moore chapter of this? Well, it's certainly an interesting development because wasn't Christine Moore the person who drew to attention the Aaron Weir thing in an email? Yes, and that's why I am maybe sounding less than totally respectful of the claim against her because the reason why this vet, Glenn Kirkland, has come forward, he has not said, I feel that she needs to be held accountable because she's uh, abusive. He's explicit. He came forward because she's taken this moral high ground against Aaron Weir. And she shouldn't throw stones in a glass house. I mean, we've heard similar things where women have said, you know, we just had the case of uh, in, in New York, the attorney general, women came forward saying like, oh, this guy's grandstanding against Weinstein. It makes me sick. He's in a glass house. He shouldn't throw stones. But there was also like a hypocrisy thing there beyond I'm going to get him. Like it's he hurts people and I want to stop him from hurting other people. I don't know that Glenn Kirkland has articulated his feeling that Christine Moore is some sort of a public menace. Just from his own words as to why he's mm -hmm. called her out, it's just that he thinks that she's a hypocrite and he's going to show her. Uh, and I'm just going on what he said. Right. No, no, that makes that makes sense. And didn't Neil McDonald say he had to like seek out Glenn Kirkland to get his statement on it because he wasn't really making it public before then? Yes, that's accurate. Uh, Neil McDonald says that he heard rumors about this vet who had this fling with Christine Moore. He tracked down. 
he tr- he's writing this weekly opinion column, and there's a parallel there because, of course, the accusers of Aaron Weir were not right. their accusations were also solicited. Yes. Um. So we just don't know uh, enough. Like, there's reason for us to be skeptical about those accusations, not the veracity, but like the extent of them, and we just don't have all the information. And similarly, the way that this Kirkland and Christine Moore thing came out was was solicited by Neil McDonald. I am going to digress for a moment, if I may, because I've been thinking a lot about Neil McDonald lately. I happen to enjoy Neil McDonald. I like personality. I think he's a smart journalist. I don't agree with a lot that he's said in the past. I think, you know, it, were he to have his own newspaper column or be on TV, I'd probably watch him. But he's got a weird job. He kind of got mothballed off of the National when they when they rejiggered the, the National. And I think he was supposed to have, he was supposed to be the marquee columnist for CBC's new opinion vertical. That's how, how I'm told it was sold to him. You're, you're, don't, don't worry, Neil, you're not on TV anymore. We're going to have three columns a week on our new opinion site. And then the people running the opinion site, I'm told, were like, we don't really want that much Neil McDonald. And so he now, as far as I can tell, and I've asked him, and we've had a cordial-ish correspondence uh, that stopped when I asked him, Neil, I'm just wondering, do you do anything else these days besides your one column a week? Because he's still on staff at the CBC, and and my knowledge of CBC rates would put him somewhere between $160,000 and $180,000 a year. And I think all he does is write a column. And it's a column where I guess when he feels like it, he can do like investigative reported stories that break news about like, where I mean, you might call it like he created this scandal for the NDP between Christine Moore and Glenn Kirkland. All of which is just to say like, word up, Neil McDonald, you got a sweet gig going, man. I mean, like, I think by the word, you must be the highest paid writer in Canada. <laughs> this was your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I read everything that you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Emma McPhee, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Emma E squared. E-M-M-A-E-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D. We are on the World Wide Web at CanadaLandShow.com, where we publish original journalism all the time. Go check that out. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode of Shortcuts is produced by David Crosby. Editorial assistance by Olamide Olanian. Kevin Sexton is our managing editor. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Thank you.